0: I'm entitling the message this morning, Our Conduct in the Savior's Church. It's the theme of the book. It's also the theme of this passage. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, you might want to read along with me. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed... I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified by the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up to glory. Paul has addressed the shepherds of the church in verses 1 through 13. And now our attention is gonna be directed to the sheep in the church in verses 14 and 15, and the savior in the church in verse 16. Paul anticipates that he might be delayed in his visit to Timothy and the church in Ephesus. He wants to give Timothy the necessary instructions concerning how to behave ...Christian conduct in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. How should we behave ourselves among ourselves? How serious is this subject? Our attention is drawn to Paul's description of the church. It is the church of the living God. The pillar and the ground of truth. And Christ in the church. That's the mystery of godliness. We're reminded that the church is the possession of the living God. And the dwelling place of the living God. And it has been established in the truth in verse 15. So the Christian acknowledges that truth and then walks in that truth. Our behavior is informed by the person of Jesus, and the character of Jesus, and the word of Jesus. So the church acknowledges that truth, walks in the truth. There is no greater proof that we possess God's truth than if we possess God's Son. This is why John will write later, he who has the son has the father, but he who does not have the son does not have the father. The person who doesn't have Jesus as Lord cannot have God as his father. And that's a message that's quite contrary to the world in which you live. So Paul provides a summary of the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus in six simple statements. Jesus appeared in a body in verse 16. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus was seen by angels. Jesus was announced to the nations. Jesus was believed on in the world. Jesus was taken up into heaven. And so in our text, Paul will now bring the focus of the entire epistle, if you will, into firm grasp. He talks about conduct in the church. Look what again it says in verse 14. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of God. Of course, these things might be a reference to everything that Paul has already wrote about in chapter one and in chapter two, up until chapter three. It refers to, I suspect, all of the themes that he's already visited and the themes that remain in the letter. Paul is most likely in Macedonia This is the northern area of what you and I would call northern Greece. If you go to Athens and you go north into that peninsula, this is the region where Paul is writing Timothy and to the church in Ephesus. Paul hopes to visit Ephesus, but it might be that he'll have to remain in Macedonia. And so this is the reason why Paul decides to spell out further how Timothy should conduct himself in the house of God. And again, it's important for pastors and leaders that they know how to behave in the church of Jesus Christ. Was Paul really delayed? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that there's no evidence that we have that Paul and Timothy are ever reunited We have no evidence whatsoever that Paul was able to rejoin Timothy at Ephesus, and that they were able to see again each other face to face. We know that in 2 Timothy, he is going to write to Timothy and he's going to ask him for some necessary supplies, but he is literally only months away from dying. So there are several themes in Paul's letters. Paul wants us to know what to believe. He wants us to know not simply what to believe, but how to behave. That expression, conduct yourself, is very interesting in the original language. It's a compound word in the Greek language, anastrophesiai. That very long word means walk, behavior. It speaks of the way that you literally act out in what you say and in what you do. And so we're encouraged to conduct ourselves among ourselves throughout the New Testament and throughout this book. There's a reoccurring theme There is an invitation to humility, an invitation to holiness, an invitation to harmony. That makes it easy to remember. Walk in humility, walk in holiness, walk in harmony. We could even add another H, honesty, walk with truth. Each and every one of us at some point in our life has heard the expression, Actions speak louder than... Everybody knows the saying. Actions speak louder than words. And collectively, our actions speak loud to our family, to our community, to our culture. It isn't specifically just what we say with our mouth, it's what we say collectively. Paul's reference to the house of God is very interesting. The emphasis is not on the building as such, but rather on the household. So even when he's speaking in this passage and he says, but if I'm delayed, So that you know how to conduct yourself in the house or the household of God. The word is a very specific word in that language. It's oikos. It's a funny word because we get the word economy from that word. But it was the common word. It was the everyday word that a Greek speaking person would use to reference their household or to reference their family. Depending on the context, it can mean building, but almost certainly in this context, it means a family. In the Old Testament, God dwelt in a tabernacle and a temple. But in the New Testament, God dwells in his people, the church. And so if the church is God's family then it becomes the most important organization on the planet Earth. And it's very, very important that you understand that. You may mentally, physically, emotionally, intellectually be able to acknowledge the centrality, if you will, of this thing called the church, but you don't necessarily live your life as if it is important. But Paul is wanting to make sure that the household, the family of God, understands and recognizes the importance. So Paul is going to now go forward. He's going to address, as we walk through the rest of the epistle, the broad themes of the pastor and doctrinal error in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. The pastor and self-discipline in chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. Paul's going to give detailed instructions about the care of widows. And elders, he's going to conclude with personal advice to Timothy. And there is much, much intention that both I and Jonathan have as I've wanted so desperately to communicate the content of this book. I want you to hear my voice in the months ahead. And remember my voice in the years ahead. Just like Paul. Paul thinks it's important that we understand that the church is a family. And even as I say that out loud, it gives shivers to some of you because you came from a dysfunctional family. You go, the church is supposed to be a family? Yeah. You mean like my family? I don't know what was your family like your family may have had all kinds of interesting and difficult dynamics the vast majority of us don't grow up with a mother and a father who love each other and stay with one another and minister to one another and provide for one another. Most of us come from some sort of situation where the family has broken down. Sometimes when you hear the word father, you might think of the person who wasn't there and didn't care. That's not what Paul has in mind. What Paul has in mind is a living father with a loving father and a church as a family and that that family is marked by not just mutual support, but the kind of truth that results in integrity and stability. And so Paul is going to shift our attention to the character of the church at the end of verse 15. Look what it says, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Paul uses several metaphors in the New Testament to describe the church. He'll use the metaphor of a family. He'll use the metaphor of a temple. He'll use the metaphor of a building or a habitation or a dwelling place where the, the spirit of God resides. He'll talk about that in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 20 and 21. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 9 through 17. It's also going to be talked about in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 8. But Paul is going to make it clear that the true church is the church of the living God. So what does Paul mean? when he describes the church as a pillar or a column. Now, for those of you who have any kind of architectural training or if you've ever seen beautiful temples, this is an architectural structure. The pillar or the column was a beautiful stand that help support the roof. And so in the ancient world of the Greeks and the Romans, but even the Jewish people in the temple, columns and pillars were plentiful and beautiful. They were strong. And I suspect what Paul means is that these are the pillars that support the roof of the truth. And so the metaphor implies that from the ground to the ceiling, there is a support that is the evidence of truth and that the Holy Spirit teaches and reveals the truth of God to believers, members of the true church. And so part of what you might be wondering is why does Paul pay so much attention to the content or the body of the truth. It's because just like in your family, if you don't have honesty in your family, you're going to have the very definition of dysfunction. And you have to have honesty in the, chur- in the church. So Paul is going to employ a, a term found only here in the Greek New Testament. When he says, which is the church of the living God, the pillar, and now the next word, the ground of the truth. It's a word, hedro mai. It actually meant more than just the, the earth that you walk on, it meant the support or the bulwark. One translation even translates this word, the basement. But the word itself seems to be an architectural word that defines the way that you dig out the surface of the ground and you have either a solid rock or some sort of firm foundation in which to build the edifice. The church is tasked from ground to ceiling with preserving the truth proclaiming the truth, protecting, guiding, and guarding the truth. The reason why I'm bringing this to your attention is I want you to just reflect for a moment on the metaphor that Paul is using. The church is a pillar. It's also a fortified embankment. So the church is a fortification in its foundation In its structure, in its roof, if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., and you see some of the incredible memorials, like the Lincoln Memorial, or Thomas Jefferson's Monticello, or you go overseas and you see these impressive pillars, one of the features of a pillar is its majesty and its strength, but it's also obvious. You don't hide pillars. Pillars, whether they're tall or whether they're short, whether they're massive or manageable, the pillar speaks of strength and support. What's interesting to me also about pillars is people's attention are drawn to them. Pillars attract attention. But what's interesting is even though they attract attention to themselves, that's not their function. Their function is to support what's inside. And so the church is supposed to contain people who have been transformed Formed by the gospel of Jesus Christ by the ministry of Jesus by the life of Jesus by the words of Jesus by the death and the resurrection of Jesus one of the ways that we might think of this phrase it, Paul is basically saying from floor to ceiling from floor to ceiling the church is the church of the living God and the church consists of people who know God and love God. In Warren Wiersbe's expository outlines on this particular passage, he says, quote, As the local church is faithful to preserve and preach and practice the truth, God's work prospers on earth. The unfaithful Christian is weakening the very foundation of God's truth in the world, unquote. In other words, what Wearsby is pointing out that the church is going to be marked by its weakest link your behavior, your life, your will, your work, what you do, and who you are. Is going to either strengthen the church or weaken the church. And so the church, the family of God, the company of the saints, exists in part to establish mutual ministry, encouraging one another. And then proclaiming the truth to the world. And then living that truth in such a way that the world is convinced that our message is true. And so the church, the family, the company of the saints become carriers infected by the truth. And what truth is that you might ask? It's the truth about his incarnation, the truth that God sent Jesus into the world, the truth that God loves the the world. Now, I want you to understand something, and if you forget everything else that I say, I'm hoping that this single phrase will stick in your mind forever. The truth, the church, the church, the church does not invent the truth. It proclaims the truth. The church does not invent the truth. The church proclaims the truth. So if a church invents something that's not in the Bible or the message of Jesus, that should immediately cause you concern. And so if you go to a place and they ask you the question, what is the true church? You should be able to say that the true church is the church that communicates the gospel, that points people to Jesus, that effectively does that, which results in the salvation of others. The truth remains the truth, even if it's denied Even if it's left unguarded, even if it's neglected, the church has always been expected to believe and trust and act on the truth. And so look at Christ in the church. And now in verse 16, it says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and then received up to glory. It's not an accident that Paul utilizes this phrase in this context. We might think of this verse as the basic body of divine revelation. Some scholars have suggested that this was an early hymn that was sung in the church. That collectively the church would get together and they would sing a song about the truths that are revealed in Christ. And so the mystery of godliness was God's hidden program. To bring godliness to the world, but now it's revealed. Remember, in the New Testament, a mystery isn't a secret left for the few to find out. A mystery is something that was hidden in the past, but's revealed in the present. It's something that is now known. And so I think Paul is exalting the greatest mystery of all that God. The God of the universe, the God who made the heavens and the earth, the God who created all things was manifested in the flesh. What in the world does that mean? This is Christ in the world and then in the church. For Jesus to be in the church, he has to first come to the world. And then he has to come to the church in order to come in your heart. This is the Jesus who comes as the telos. That means the end. Jesus is the sum and summary of the revelation of God. This is why the gospel writers say in him was truth. The Bible says... That the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus. And so the verse exalts Jesus. His incarnation and birth, his death and his resurrection, his earthly ministry. This is the summary of the person and the work of Jesus. And this is the preoccupation of the church. I've told you over and over and over and over and over. That the mission of Colonel Sanders is we do chicken and we do chicken right. Now they have coleslaw and they have mashed potatoes. I know you hate it when I talk about food this early in the morning. But the mission of the church is to exalt Jesus. It's to preach Jesus. It's to present Jesus. It's to remind people of Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of the mystery. The God of heaven becomes flesh, the secret of pleasing God, once veiled, once concealed, now revealed. Jesus is the revelation of the mystery. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 through 14. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul admits that everything, everything that came into existence, came into existence because of Jesus. In the Old Testament, it says, in the beginning was in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In John's opening verse, it says, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." In Colossians chapter one verse 27, everything, everything, everything comes into existence through Jesus, and for Jesus, it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And so, the secret of knowing God, the secret of pleasing God, the secret of living a godly life is found in Jesus. Two weeks ago, I prayed for Art, who was sitting in that chair. Last week, I greeted him. When I prayed for him while he was sitting in that chair, he turned to me and he said, The doctors have said that they can't help me anymore but I know that Jesus can help me. He loved Jesus. He woke up in the morning and loved Jesus. He lived his life loving Jesus. He went peacefully into the arms of Jesus. It is impossible. It is impossible. It is impossible to know God. It is impossible to be rescued from your sin apart from Jesus. The man, Christ Jesus, lives the perfect life that we could never live. The God man gives us the power to please God and then live a right life through Christ. And for those of you who are struggling, for those of you who are wondering, for those of you who live in this constant state of turmoil and temptation, for those of you who are constantly faced with fear, for those of you who are constantly wondering whether or not God loves you and cares about you and whether or not the changes that have been made inside of you are going to be sufficient to reconcile you to the Father you have to remember what the Bible says. That God is satisfied, not with you, but with Jesus. And because God is satisfied with Jesus, when you invite Jesus to be your Savior and he comes into your life, he becomes satisfied with you. And once you really believe that, That Jesus really is in you. What Paul says, Christ in you. The hope of glory. You have the tools in order to think differently and live differently and act differently. Every phrase of this hymn is a mystery. In what way? It means it's beyond our comprehension. But yes, it is accessible To each and every one of us. I want you to understand what I'm saying right now. None of us will fully understand. Any single sentence that Paul has just now said. But all of us have access. To the truth that it reveals. The life application Bible commentary says. We accept. The truth as it has been revealed to us, and the results of our belief are life changing. Unquote. So, Paul says, and without controversy. You know what that means? Not subject to dispute. Without controversy. Well, I want to argue with you whether or not Jesus really is God in the flesh. You can argue all you want. Nothing will undo the truth of what the Bible says. Jesus is God in human flesh. The mystery of godliness is something all believers embrace and affirm. And the very fact that perhaps some of you don't embrace it or affirm it means that you can't embrace the title believer. Believer is a word that incorporates acknowledgement and embracing of what the Bible says about Jesus, about our sin and the solution to the problem of sin. So the mystery of godliness was was supposed to be something that all believers embrace, uphold, affirm. These truths are simple statements with profound implications. And we're to accept them as true. God manifest. God was manifested in the flesh. The oldest manuscripts read, Ho, He, He. Who was manifested in the flesh? The Greek language reads Hos. It was later changed to Teos. The King James Version reads God became or God manifested in the flesh. Well, is this a problem? Not really. Remember the subject it's Jesus. So what is Paul saying? God was made known, manifested, made known in the flesh. That means in reality, in his incarnation. Does that present a problem? Not really. Again, God becomes a human being. How is that even possible? How can an infinite, self-existent God take on a finite, comprehensible nature? I am not sure. All I know is that it happened. I was talking to my friend Doug Grotice, and I said, God, Jesus, remains sufficiently, thoroughly, totally God. He is sufficiently, thoroughly, totally human. I said, why isn't it safe to say that he's 100% God and 100% human beings? And my friend Doug says, because the math doesn't add up. You can't have 200% of a 100% being. He says it's it's an illogical contradiction. And I said, well, then how do you address this issue that Jesus is completely human He is completely God. His humanity is diminished in no way. His Godness is affirmed in its totality. He said, that statement is true. How do you reconcile it? I don't. The very fact that God assumes another nature, a human nature, must mean that it is God who is made known. And again, this is confirmed in John's Gospel. The word becomes flesh. The word that John uses is tabernacled. That means he pitches his tent among us. The incarnation provides the basis whereby sinful human beings can be reconciled to God. Os Guinness writes, quote, The fact that the greatest mystery of all, the incarnation, comes at the very beginning and is the central reason why we believe in God We cannot explain it. There is the beginning of the mystery of faith. But because of the evidence, neither can we explain it away. This is the beginning of the rationality of truth, unquote. Does an invisible, eternal, self-existent God enter into time and space? The answer is yes. And what's amazing is... It isn't just this great big theological subject. This is the reason. This is the reason why you can be saved. Why your sin can be cleansed. One of the early church fathers, Gregory of Nazanaus, spells out the mystery. Quote, the self-existent comes into being. The uncreate is created. That which cannot be contained is contained, unquote. The living God becomes human. He acquires a second nature. A real human being with real flesh and blood. Human in every way that humans are human. Participating in the trials and the sufferings. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2, for indeed he does not give aid to angels... But he does give aid to the seed of Abraham and that he is basically saying God doesn't become an angelic being in order to rescue angels, contrary to our Jehovah Witness friends. Jesus is not the archangel Michael. Jesus doesn't become an angelic being in order to save angelic beings. He becomes a human being in order to save human beings. Therefore, in all things, it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might also be merciful and faithful, high priest and things pertaining to God, to make propitiation. That means the satisfying solution. For the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to help those or aid those who are being tested or tempted. Jesus is able to help you. So how important is this doctrine? This virgin birth? This belief that a true God, the living God, becomes a human being and enters into the human story. You can't have the solution to the problem of sin unless this is true. And so Paul writes, God manifests justified in the spirit. What does he mean by that? What does Paul mean by that? He means that when Jesus walked on the earth... Everything that he said and did was true. Pause. Everything that Jesus said and did was outrageous and unbelievable. Jesus said that he came from God. Jesus said that he came to save people. Jesus said that if you kill him, he's going to come back to life. That's nonsense. Unless it's true unless it's true. He came to the earth. The vast majority rejected his claims. The Bible says he came into his own, but his own didn't receive him. The Holy Spirit ensured that Jesus would live a holy and a sinless life. The Holy Spirit gave him power to perform miracles. The Holy Spirit vindicated, that is, justified Jesus by raising him from the dead. In Romans chapter 1, verse Four, Paul says, and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Peter in 1 Peter 3.18 says, for Christ also suffered for sins, the just, that's him, for the unjust, that's you, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive or quickened by the Spirit, this Jesus God raised up. We are his witnesses, it says in Acts 2.32. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of the Father, having received the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on you, justified by the Spirit. Everything that Jesus said, I'm going to live perfect life happened, die a perfect death, satisfying, it happened, rise from the dead, it happened. The Holy Spirit justifies, vindicates the words and deeds of Jesus. This same spirit that justified the words and the deeds of Jesus, according to the Bible, lives inside of you. The spirit lives inside of you if you've, if you've received Christ. This is the spirit that's able also to justify you. Seen by angels. The earthly ministry of Jesus was accompanied by the supernatural presence of spirit beings. Not ancient alien Astronauts. Angels were sent by God at his birth in Luke one twenty six. Angels were sent during the temptation in the wilderness, Mark 1 12. Angels were present in his trials, Luke 22. Angels were present at his resurrection, Matthew 28 2. Angels were present when he ascended into heaven, Acts chapter 1 verse 10. The early church reflected and thought on this reality. Angels were present at his birth. Angels were there during his life. Angels were present at his death. Angels were present at his resurrection. Angels were present at his ascension. And then preached among the Gentiles. The Lord Jesus was preached to the nations. Paul would later say, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, which is modern-day Yugoslavia and Albania and that area, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. I've made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, this is in the book of Isaiah, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand, unquote. That's Romans chapter 15, verses 19 through 21. The word gentile means ethnos in Hebrew it's goim in Greek it's ethnos it means the people groups or people groups Colossians 1 23 this is the gospel that you heard that's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I Paul have become a servant in Colossians chapter 1 verse 23 every human being on the planet earth who has a smartphone has access to the gospel If you're in Saudi Arabia and you have a smartphone, you can access the gospel. If you're in North Korea in a totalitarian government, you can access the the gospel. The gospel is readily available everywhere. Are there people who don't have smartphones? Yes. Believed on in the world. This is the reason Jesus comes into the world. So that by believing you can be saved. After the painful death of Jesus and the glorious resurrection of Jesus, the angel told the women he's risen from the dead, and then Jesus shows himself, and then he appears to over 500 witnesses. He is believed by the apostles. He is believed by Paul. He is believed by the people who, who hear the gospel and, and receive it. And he's been believed on by me. I believe this. I've invited you to believe it. In the most famous passage in all of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes, the invitation is given for you to believe. And then received up in glory. This is a reference to the bodily ascension of Jesus into heaven. This is the reference to what theologians call the exaltation of Jesus. This is the, what's been said in, in the book of Acts. That Jesus ascends into heaven. and An angel, they watch Jesus go to heaven. And an angel says, why do you guys see? Stare up into space. This same Jesus who you see leaving will in like manner return. This is why Paul thinking about this in Philippians chapter 2 will say Jesus is going to come back. But there's also going to be a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that this exalted Jesus is Lord. Jesus returns to the place where he came from. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. This is why when we have baptisms, I will always say to you, because of your confession of faith, because you believe that Jesus came into this world, that he lived the, he was born of a virgin, lived the perfect life that you could never live. He died on the cross for your sins, He rose from the dead for your justification. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, where he will come again to judge the living and the dead. These are the, these are the things that you must believe. And so the church on earth is the body of Christ on earth. And the church on earth is the preoccupation of angels in heaven. You might be thinking that the angels this morning are reading the president's tweet. Not true. The angels don't care about the crisis in the gulf. The angels don't care about fashion. The angels care about you. They watch you. They're paying attention to you. The church of God is important to God. So important that even the angels say, if this is important to God, I think it's going to be important to me. And this is why we love the church. This is why I love the church. This is why I've devoted my life to the church. And most particularly to this church. So that you would love one another. So that you would love the Lord. So that you would love the lost. Charles H. March, over a century ago, wrote a hymn that's been revived in the last few years. He sang, living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming. glorious day living he loved me dying he saved me I'm hoping and praying that the songs that you sing will remind you of what you believe what you hope in what you trust in the church is never more like a family than when it acts like a family. In our culture, that often means dysfunctional. But it was never meant to be that way. It was meant to be a place where you were safe, and where you were loved, and where you could be encouraged. And now you understand why Paul is saying to Timothy what Paul is saying, I need you to act like a family that really cares about each other and believes in what our Father has said to us about the Son. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I, I do commit this time to you, Lord. And again, I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray that, Lord, we would be encouraged as men and women that we would renew our commitment to Jesus and to one another so that we could fulfill all godliness. And so, Father, again, I pray that you would bind up the brokenhearted. Lord, I pray that you would liberate that person who's in bondage. Lord, I pray for that person who is struggling each and every day Lord, I pray that you'd fill them with the Holy Spirit and strength to love you and to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.